0: Let me begin by asking you guys a question. What is the greatest threat to the modern American church? What's the greatest threat to the modern the modern American church? One has said that it is when the church looks like the world. When the church looks like the world and, and therefore loses and forsakes its testimony. You can imagine the situation where the watching world might, have, might look at you, members of the church, or any church, and they might conclude wrongly that, hey, you know, if these people are living no different than us, if they look exactly like us, then your Christ is not a big deal. Who needs Jesus anyways? Maybe you can think of your own situation where you have given yourself to worldliness and your own non-Christian friends looked at the way you were living. Maybe your testimony was such that Your Jesus is not all that powerful and not all that important. And really, who cares about what he says? Because you certainly don't listen to what he says. Though these Christians might claim to know the steadfast love of Christ, sadly, maybe there's no difference in who or what or how we go about loving. Though we claim to know the Holy Christ, maybe there's no difference in how we live. In our passage today, we look at a church whose testimony was, in fact, being compromised as they were struggling with worldliness. And Jesus the judge, here's like the main point of today, Jesus the judge calls them to endure by holding fast to the faith and in your holy living. Jesus the judge calls them to endure by holding fast to the faith, that's what they were doing, But they were also, what they had forgotten, they were to hold fast to holy living. Our passage this morning is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. If you have your bulletins, go ahead and turn there. Better yet, turn in your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This morning we look at one of Christ's letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We're going through this series here. And Revelation is the grand finale, right, of God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. The last book of the Bible. If Genesis is about origins, beginnings. Well, Genesis is about the grand finale. It's about the conclusion. In Genesis, for example, we see how God created man to be in a relationship with him, but man rebelled against their good and perfect loving God, their creator. And so they separated themselves from God. They earned for themselves just judgment. Well, by the time we get to Revelation, if you just sort of flip through the story, think of the story of salvation... By the time we hit Revelation, we have already seen God, the Eternal Son, take on flesh to win salvation as He dies on the cross. He wins salvation for all who would ever repent of their sins and believe. And so He grants, He wins for them forgiveness. He wins for them reconciliation with God. And so all who turn to Him, repent of their sins and believe, will in fact be saved. The good news that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ could be had, like that's the mission the mission that Jesus' church would to take to the ends of the earth. And we were to do that, we are to do that, as we await his return, as described in Revelation. And in that return, if you guys think about that grand finale, God himself brings to a conclusion his plan of salvation, where he takes his people to be with himself, and he destroys Satan once and for all, in that he locks away the key. This here, Revelation itself, is a hope-filled prospect for all Christians, whether Christians today here in ASEAN Heights, or Christians then who were living in the city of Pergamum in the first century there. Pergamum. This is the, the letter to the church in Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 there, 12 to 17. Pergamum was a coastal city in what we call today Asia Minor, a modern-day Turkey, coastal city. You got the Mediterranean Sea. you got a coastal city of Pergamum there. In fact, all the churches mentioned in two in chapters two and three are all in Asia Minor. Modern-day Turkey, once again. But while, of course, he was addressing that particular church in this particular letter, we know from the letters themselves that they were supposed to be circulated, and all the churches, then and now, were to receive the message. Because we find ourselves all identifying with various aspects of these Christians, and so we too, and also because of the word of God is to us, we are to receive these words of God as if they are to us. And from this letter, and from all the letters really, he calls those churches to endure until the end while we await his return. Let's see how the Christians in Pergamum were called to endure. I'll go ahead and read that passage right now. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's think here about how Jesus Christ the Judge calls them to endure, calls us to endure as well. Here we go, point number one. Jesus Christ calls them to endure by holding fast to the faith. Again, this is an encouragement. It's what they were already doing. Jesus praises the church for enduring from, from the beginning of the letter. Jesus, if you look there in verse 12, it opens up in a way similar to the other letters have. Jesus tells John, this, this uh, book of Revelation was written by John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John as well as 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Jesus gives him a vision and he says, look, this is what I want you to tell these churches. And he says there, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. Right Standard introduction here, same with the other letters. Jesus tells John to write to the angel. Maybe it's a human leader. Maybe it's some sort of spiritual counterpart of the church. Regardless, it is that he wants him to write these letters. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So already we're off to a very clear picture of who this jesus is he's a jesus who is judged this is serious and we are certainly going to come back to this idea but jesus really starts off encouraging the church i know where you dwell where satan's throne is yet despite these things you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where satan dwells fascinating language here when it talks about where satan dwells satan's throne I think if we modern Americans were transported back to that city of Pergamum there in the first century, we would be quite shocked at all the reminders of the culture's paganism around. Now, if you've traveled to different places, maybe India, etc., and you sort of land right there, or in the Middle East where we live for a while, if you land up there, things are very different. You are reminded, as the call to prayer is being blazed out, five times a day in through loudspeakers, or if you're, let's say, in India and you have the same thing, basically, where songs from the Hindu temples are being blasted in multiple directions because there's so many temples there, you would be quite shocked as a modern day American. Here in LA, we don't have too many reminders of paganism, right? That might dominate the city, etc. Uh, it's true that the vast majority of people here are just secularists and not pagans, Um, But if we were, again, to turn up to to Pergamum, you know, Mediterranean Sea, just think of, it's very similar to L.A. in some ways, you know, in the Pacific Ocean, you pull up to Los Angeles, you got maybe a 15 mile, 20 mile journey to downtown L.A., same with Pergamum, Mediterranean Sea, you make your way 20 miles inland, and then you got Pergamum, Um, and if we arrived there in that city, we would find ourselves under, literally under A massive 40-foot altar to Zeus. The altar loomed 800 feet above the city; it was like a three-tiered city. Um, And you can think of, like, let's say, the Hollywood sign. Maybe that is what some people worship here, but uh, and everything that it represents. But it's something like the how the Hollywood sign is over Los Angeles, and actually had uh, this altar to Zeus. Actually, had the similar dimensions to the Hollywood sign. About the Hollywood sign is 45 feet tall. This altar was about 40 feet tall. Uh, It's about 800 feet in elevation, depending on what trail you're taking to the Hollywood sign. Same with this altar to Zeus. Zeus is the skyline of Pergamum. Not only did the city have altars to Zeus, it also worshipped and had worship sites for the four main deities. Not only Zeus is one, but also Athena, Dionysus, and then one that I find difficult to pronounce, asclepius the city was known to be the chief the chief worship city for these gods of course they worshiped other gods as well and then you have the whole thing about emperor worship they too there in pergamum were known for this they were in fact the first city in asia minor to build a temple to the emperor and they were known to be the temple wardens so to speak of the area and if you, Christian, live there, imagine living in this pagan area, if you live there, you are expected to sacrifice to the pagan gods and as also to venerate Caesar as well. So with all of this pagan worship going on, you can see here why this city is metaphorically described as Satan's throne. There in verse 13, it is known to be where Satan dwells. So again, imagine yourself in this pagan city. If you refuse to participate in the city's worship traditions and rituals of pagan worship, right? if you're refusing to join in their festivals, where they're sacrificing to gods and eating feasts to their gods, you then would be coerced to sacrifice to the emperor. Because hey, if you're not going to worship Zeus, then what about this emperor guy? Let's see where your loyalties lay, to Caesar or to this Jesus, crucified and resurrected Jesus that you say is king. And Christians who gave their loyalties to Jesus and stood for him while they faced persecution... They were ostracized. We saw last time that they had no economic future. they were poor, and this one, at least was killed, Antipas, called even "my faithful witness." But amidst the bombardment of the pagan culture around them, pressure from society, pressure from, uh, pressure from the Roman authorities, these Christians endured. This is an encouraging thing. if you are enduring in your witness. This is an encouraging thing that Jesus comes along and encourages them and you in. Jesus says, despite these things, you held fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Could mean either they the Christian faith, like the body of truths. It could also mean faith in me. And this is Jesus speaking here. Regardless, they held fast. They stood fast for Jesus's name. So in these outright attacks, like these head on attacks against the church, by pagan culture, persecution from authorities and whatnot, they stood for Jesus Christ, the true Savior God. Zeus was known to be Savior God, but they stand for the true Savior God, the only king worthy of worship. But here's the problem. While they did a good job with resisting Satan's more straightforward attacks by pagan culture and the emperor, to basically abandon the worship of God and worship these folks. You know, they were pretty good, but it seems that some of them gave in to Satan's more sneaky attacks. Outside attacks, no problem. Head-on attacks, no problem. But attacks from within, they gave in to them. I heard one pastor describe Satan's strategy this way. If Satan can't kill the church head-on, he joins it instead. Instead. For some in the church, Satan lured them away to live like the culture around them and so nullify their witness and testimony to Jesus. They make Christ and His Spirit a laughingstock of the city. And so they traded in the holiness of Jesus for the worldliness of Pergamum and all that they could maybe gain, social standing, economic future, pleasure, Security, all these things. And so Jesus brings this charge against them. He commands them to change their ways and to repent. This brings us to point number two. Point number two Jesus Christ, the judge, calls them to endure, and this requires resisting worldliness. Point number two here, summary Enduring requires resisting worldliness. These Christians started looking less and less like Jesus and more and more like the world around them. Maybe, unfortunately, You, like me, sadly, know what this is like. When maybe even unknowingly or maybe knowingly, you begin to adopt the the culture around you and even their sin patterns, and your heart gets dulled for Jesus. Maybe some of you, that's going on right now. Well, it was happening to them. They adopted these pagan practices. They joined in these pagan festivals where they're feasting together with those who are sacrificing food to the gods, and you see there, they're giving into some sort of sexual immorality. Look at 14 and 15 here, and pay attention here. Jesus is going to draw this comparison. He's going to draw a comparison. He says, look, what's going on right there in your church, that's what happened back in the Old Testament. And there's that comparison. The sins are the same, Jesus says. Look there at verse 14. But, he says, I have a few things against you. That's like formal legal language here. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, Old Testament story, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This whole Balaam thing refers back to an old, refers back to Old Testament Israel's desert wanderings, right, where God rescued them out of slavery under Egypt and was bringing them to the land of promise. They were going through the world in their wanderings going to the land of promise that's like us going to the land of promise and as they were going out of, the, out of Egypt to the promised land a king named Balak wanted to destroy God's people and so he consulted with this pagan prophet named Balaam and uh sure I'm sure you guys have those of you who grew up knowing these stories you might know of different events that happened with this prophet but what's highly highlighted, highlighted here with this pagan prophet Balaam is how Balaam counseled the king on how to weaken the people of God. Imagine that this is what sin does, what Satan does, trying to seek ways to weaken the people of God in their journey from here to there. And it's pretty obvious, right? It's obvious for everybody. If you want to weaken the people of God, if you want to weaken anyone, actually, bait them according to man's inherent sinful lusts. If you want to read these stories, you can turn to Numbers 25, Numbers you can just go, you know, to go there now. But uh, you know, numbers twenty-five on, and you see here that Balaam, he succeeded because the king listened to them and baited the people of God, preying on man's inherent sinful lusts, and God's people, whom He had rescued for Himself, who were to be holy unto Himself, ended up looking like the world. They abandoned God. This is what the Bible says by whoring after the people of the land, and so they were drawn away. Because they were whoring after the people of the land, they were then were drawn away to worship pagan gods. They fellowshipped. They were one with heart with pagans in worship, feasting to their supposed gods and committing sexual immorality. The same were happening to the Christians in Pergamum. Verse, verse 15 So also, so, just like them, you guys too have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you see this parallel here, given how Jesus is drawing this parallel between what happened with Old Testament Israel and then the New Testament church there in the first century at Pergamum, th- their sins are quite similar. Eating food sacrificed to idols, they're, they're giving to the pagan practices, and they are committing sexual immorality. It could be that even the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the, and, um, the teaching of Balaam were perhaps one and the same but regardless they were a compromised people a compromised church i wonder if you guys see yourselves as in danger of compromise also we don't have the teaching of the nicolaitans or balaam these ethical teachings going on here at this church but how exactly are you in danger of being compromised Right? You guys understand that Satan still desires to hinder you, Christ's people, from living for Jesus Christ? And he does this by luring Christians away and baiting you according to your own sinful lusts. Of course, we know that when we're saved, God certainly gives us a new heart, but we still wrestle with indwelling sin. Sin is still there, even though we're being changed. So this is how it works, okay? Remember the days when you were not a Christian? For those of you who were, who were converted later on in life. Or just think of how you you sin regularly, okay? Just imagine that. What did you used to live for and what did you used to dream about? When sin tempts you, aren't you still tempted to believe that that dream world is where true fulfillment and satisfaction is at? And so given here the nature of the sin in Pergamum, how it involved other people... Let's think about the dream worlds that we create in our sin uh, that involve people. Maybe your dream world is about being made much of. Being gloried in. You desire so much for your life to look like that, your favorite romantic comedy where the, the star is being made much of. That's powerful. That is a powerful dream, especially if you already think you aren't worthy of being made much of in a worldly way. Or maybe your dream is worldly status, like finally, if I could just achieve that thing or reach that status, like, I don't know, having a status of a family. And you think that that's inherently better than not having a family, even though that's completely against scripture, Jesus didn't have an earthly family it doesn't seem that Paul had an earthly family but you know hey they're pretty cool guys right and you think when you achieve then you can finally feel good about yourself then you're finally something or maybe it's security and you long for the day when someone right will bail you out of this financial so-called hell you might have grown up in and maybe then you don't have to worry about insecurity and financial instability or just take carnal pleasure you know that God created us to enjoy sex in a covenant union of marriage. Praise the Lord. But now you're thinking that maybe this pleasure is not worth waiting for. And so you want it and take it now. right? So what's your dream world, right? Well, then think, what's the bait that Satan lures you in that direction? where if you had this thing, you could attain your dreams. Because that's the thing that we need to look out for, right? If Satan is luring us, baiting us, just like he did with the Israelites in the Old Testament, just as he does now, and he wants to devour someone, then we need to actually pay attention to these things, because it's that thing that's going to cause us to stumble. That's the stumbling block that we just simply trip over and can't get up from sometimes. You know what I find to be a huge, huge stumbling block for many young Christians? It's dating relationships with non-Christians. It's dating relationships with non-Christians. And it's such a huge lure because, that Satan uses to draw Christians into worldliness. Maybe you've heard the reasoning in your own past. Maybe you yourself have given that same reasoning as I have, sadly. But she is the perfect girl. But she is the perfect guy. Or, you know, he makes me feel so special Think of that dream of being gloried in, being made much of. Or this person is interested in me, and you know what? I think that we could actually get married. Think status. Or, look, they have a great job. Oh, you think thinking security. This person's going to bail me out. Or you think, wow, she is so hot. He is so hot. And you think of pleasure. And so with our earthly dreams so close, those dreams that we dreamed about for so long, with them being so close to being achieved, the Christian compromises. Christ is sidelined. Living for the honor of Christ, sidelined. Faithfulness to Jesus, sidelined. And so we give ourselves to our dreams, so to speak. Christians, you guys know that if it is a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, which God does indicate in the Bible, say that in the Bible, it is a sin to give yourself to a dating relationship to a non-Christian. What would that say about your allegiances and your love to Jesus? Let's let's, let's use this human example here, because I know sometimes it's kind of hard to hear this, but let's use this human example to kind of... Ourselves in God's position here. Let's say, you know, a gal finally brings home a boy to meet her beloved mom, single mom, mom who made sacrifice upon sacrifice to provide for you, to love you, to raise you, and by God's grace to make you who you are today. Praise God, even though you guys grew up in a very difficult situation. Would you ever say to the boy in your mom's presence as the guy comes over and knocks on your door, Hey, I'm so glad you came over to meet my mom. But just to let you know, you don't have to love my mom at all. You don't even have to like her. In fact, you don't even need to acknowledge anything she's done, about who she is or what she's done, to make me who I am today. Either way, I give you my heart. Till death do us part. The daughter who doesn't stand for her mother, the truth of her mother existence of her mother the character of a mother the sacrifice of a mother you know at the end of the day we're left asking well how much does this girl value her mother if she is so readily able to trade her away what shows that she does value her isn't it standing for the truth about her mother who she is and what she has done in love and in all of her persistence and all of her sacrifice friends you see the same as with jesus and Christ is of infinite worth. Talk about character and work. If that girl brings home a guy who disregards her mother, do you think that the girl's heart for her mother will grow? Or, or just you know, with common wisdom, do we think that the, mother's, the girl's heart for her mother will actually diminish? There's a reason why God tells His people not to marry those who have no love for Him as Lord, it's because in marrying them, as well as dating them, the Christian's love for Christ often dulls. You know, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian. <laughs> I'm not bringing this up because we don't like you. I have a number of non-Christian friends. I love them. I'm encouraging them. I invite them over into my home. But just so that you guys know, Christ is the foundation of the Christian's life, Right? He, he is more foundational than our mothers in the Christian's life. He's the creator of the universe. He is God over us and Christ who is with us and he is the only king. And in his work on the cross, he forgives and he loves as he gives himself up, dying on the cross for the sins of his people. This is the message of the gospel that is so foundational to the Christian's life. We talked about earlier how God created man to be in a relationship with him. We earn for ourselves just judgment against God. We ran away from God, pursues us. We basically say, get lost. We don't really care what you think about us. And we're going to determine what is right and wrong for our own selves. And so we dethrone God. But God being so rich in mercy and steadfast in his love, he persists and pursues those who rebelled against him even though he knew that they were the ones to bear the punishment and earn for themselves just judgment even in hell, he sends his eternal son to live the perfect life that we should have, that was demanded of us. He dies on the cross bearing the punishment that his people deserved, right? Because we were the ones who earned for ourselves just judgment. But Jesus takes all of that wrath upon himself. Why does he do that? It's because he loves us. Because he seeks to forgive sinners He desires them to be reconciled with God and know His love and peace and adoption into His family, not by anything we have done, but solely by grace through faith. You realize that for the Christian, we understand that the definition of love is Christ. We know love on account of His love, even though we abandon Him in our sin. Talk about character, right? Talk about work that is so foundational. He is the one who pays our debt and bears our punishment as our substitutionary sacrifice. And so the life we have in freedom and peace is won for us through Jesus Christ. He is the one who changes us by His Spirit such that we are not as sinful, all sinful as we could be because the Spirit is working in us. And He is our loving Savior who is also righteous judge. Meaning we ought to listen to Him. The whole entire world ought to listen to Him. And just as all things were made through him, as the Bible says, all things were made for him, right? That's foundational. That's character and work at the foundation of the Christian's lives. And so you see that it's simply incompatible for the Christian to partner with someone who refuses to give Christ the honor he deserves. Someone who doesn't acknowledge the Savior's love or doesn't care about the Savior's love or someone who outright rejects Jesus' truth. He says that sinners are in need of him and, you know, people, some, those, those who don't believe just say, well, I don't really care. Think about the one who disregards him as Lord, as Savior, as judge. You know, I'm sure all of us know that people in general do not partner with others for all sorts of different reasons and much lesser matters than things that have to do with eternal security, right? Like this happens all the time. So I hope that you know, if you're visiting again, you know you know yourself to be exploring Christianity. You know, I hope you just say, "Yeah, like I totally get it, right?" Because I'm sure this is how this is how the world works. People break up all the time for different reasons, right? I really value think about this breakup situation. I really value financial responsibility, but you know, you I've been getting to know you, and you show a pattern of not money using money wisely. You know, maybe you got like $500,000 of credit card debt. So I'm sorry, but we're gonna have to break up. This happens regularly, non-Christians and christians Another one, breakup story, right? I value family, and you don't really seem to value my family, so I'm going to have to break up with you. That's how important family is to me. I value goals, and you know what? You don't really seem to have goals. You seem to be static, or you, know, you seem to be a little confused at this particular moment, and though you're a nice guy, look, I think we're going to have to break up. We are going to have to break up, because that's how important goals are to me. So you see how that works there? And these things have to do nothing with eternal security and salvation. But you see how it works. The reason for breaking up in these these fictional stories that I've just mentioned, right, to the person, to the other person who, who, uh, to to the one who is being broken up with, you see that the reason why the person breaks up with that person, You. you, is that important, right? You see that, how that works? Look, financial responsibility is that important that I need to break up with you. Then you leave thinking like, wow, financial responsibility, that's really important to that person. Or family is really important to that person. Or goals is that, in person to that, that important to that person. So Christian, how fundamental is Jesus to you? How important is Jesus to you? The other person may not agree with your decision, but they come, in, they come away knowing that that thing is your cherished thing. The person who does not truly cherish Jesus will trade him away, his desires, his commands, his lordship, for the thing that they truly dream about, right? This again is exactly why God warns us throughout the Bible that giving one's heart to someone who rejects Christ leads the heart away from Christ. Christian, to seek union with someone who does not believe To seek union with someone who does not believe will lead you to unite in all that that person does believe. And so you will become worldly, general counsel from the Bible. We come to take on the character and behavior of the world and we come to look less and less like Jesus Christ. So what does Christ say to this person? church struggling with worldliness christ calls them commands them to repent which means to change one's ways and to right the wrongs or to turn the mind and then to address the behavior right it requires action one can't simply say i'm sorry but i'm just not going to change that's not true repentance they're supposed to change one's ways and address the behavior and notice christ directs his command to the entire church isn't that interesting Sin in the church is a corporate matter here, right? You think of the three different groups that they probably had. You had the ones who were actually teaching the false doctrine, false teachers. They probably snuck in somehow. Number two, you had some who bought into the false teaching, right? So maybe a cer- certain group of people are saying like, oh yeah, that teaching sounds really good, very fitting for my lifestyle. I think I'm gonna do that. And then you had a third group. That group was just tolerant of what was going on. And so Christ says, look, the, all of you guys need to repent. Those teaching needs to stop teaching, Those accepting false doctrine needs to stop it and start living in a way that accords with the gospel. And those tolerating sin need to simply stop tolerating it to correct them, to rebuke them according to the word of God. And if not, then exercise church discipline. Thankfully, if we had more time, we can go on and talk about how Matthew 18 speaks about this church discipline. You know, keeping the circle small going in and rebuking the person who's living in sin. But if the issue is so big, eventually, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, tell it to the church, right? So that eventually, even the, the, the one living in sin can be saved, that they might come to see the wrong that they're doing and turn back to the loving Savior. Just as the command is so clear, so is Christ's warning of judgment. Go ahead and look there, verse 16. He says there, if they don't change their ways, right? This is conditional. If they don't change their ways, verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them, that is, those who persist in sin and reject Jesus, with the sword of my mouth. Here we come back to the same depiction that started off the letter. Verse 12 starts with Jesus, who has a sharp two-edged sword. And then here at the conclusion, we have the sword of his mouth, speaking of God's holy and righteous judgment, his word of judgment. This harkens back to the vision of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1, verse 16, 17, 18. This is Christ who according to the book, the Bible, Revelation, comes to judge the living and the dead, who carries out his justice according to the law in accordance with his character. Friends, having wrestled with worldliness myself, and there are so many who have done the same here who are now members of the church, having wrestled with worldly, worldliness myself, this warning is really helpful. Incredibly helpful. Simply because Jesus states very clearly the fact that there are consequences to actions. There are consequences to actions. He's not hiding them, right? right? He's not going to trick us, saying, oh, I didn't tell you. It's like, this, is, this is what it is. And if you, friend, have ever been in need of a rebuke, then you know, you know that warnings like these are helpful in that they call us, they alert us to the problem, and then they call us to cut off sin and then to return to God. We all know that we can be pretty stubborn. But here we are jolted awake as Jesus reminds us that God takes sin really seriously. He reminds us that while He is certainly a loving Savior, He is still holy God. We're reminded that Jesus is righteous and that He saves us from sin, but that also His people are to be a pure church that displays the power of His salvation to the watching world. And the church members at this church, church members at the Pergamum church, right we are to choose whether we are with Christ or with the world do you christian need to hear this warning given your own struggles today perhaps you have been u- tempted to unite with the world or perhaps you are actually united with the world in some particular way let me ask you do you i mean given who jesus is Do you really want to be found at His return holding hands, embracing, and being in bed with the world? Given Christ, the Lord of creation will come to judge? Christian, if you find yourself giving in to worldliness, your Lord and Savior commands you to turn from your sin and to trust in Him. And again, even if you know yourself not to be a Christian, this, this judgment is for everybody. And in fact, it actually starts with the household of God, Peter says in the book of 1 Peter. that judgment starts with the household of God, as we're seeing right here to the letter, of the, to, the letter to the church in Pergamum. But here, this judgment is for everybody, where Christ will come and to judge. And so you too can know this forgiveness of sins and be united and reconciled with the Father, through Jesus Christ, if you turn from your sins and believe, and the Bible says you will be saved, guaranteed. Christian, let me encourage you to display your love for Christ. Right, I, get, I recognize that some of you, uh, you guys, some of us might be struggling. Let me encourage you to display your love for Christ. Prove your love to Christ by turning from your sin. And by His grace be faithful again to the covenant you made with Him when you were saved. When He saved you by His grace and when you pledged your allegiance to Him as your Lord, your Savior, and your King. Repent of your sins. To return to Jesus Christ before it is too late. Hear Jesus' warning from Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Christian, let me encourage you, implore with you to choose Christ. I know perhaps for for some of you, you may have had the idea of your dream for so long. And that's no surprise Ever since the fall of man, people have been dreaming, right? Ever since the fall of man, you recognize that people have been dreaming and longing for this restoration of Eden. I don't want to squash longing, right? When longing is good, it points to the fact that this world is not what it was designed to be. This world now, given the fallenness of man, given sin, is not how God designed it to be. But you realize, that, Christian, that Jesus wants you to long for the right things and what better encouragement is to know, is to know is there than to know that as you walk the footsteps again of self-denial just as jesus did as he went to the cross christ guarantees that in him there will come a restored eden a new heaven and a new earth as revelation 21 speaks about this is the new creation and there our hearts will know this rest that you yourself already long for will come to know this rest once and for all where the church will celebrate with Christ, our groom at the what Jesus calls the marriage supper of the lamb. Revelation 19. Christian, why choose the world when Christ invites you sinners to salvation in him? Where in him we even participate in glory, the Bible says. Where in him we know intimacy with our savior that far exceeds anything here that this earthly world has to offer. In Christ, we have security in His kingdom with eternal riches in Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christian, why would you choose the world when this loving Savior, who knows everything about you, your past sin, present sin, future sins, He knows our idolatries, and yet He calls us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why would you choose the world? This invitation to be with Christ forever, eternal salvation, it's what verse 17, I think, is all about. Look there, to the one who conquers, the one who endures to the end in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thinking back to God's people in the Exodus, you remember how God sustained His people as they went from Egypt, the land of slavery, to the land of promise? He sustained them through the bread of heaven, that is the manna. And what did this manna point to ultimately? Jesus Christ says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. As we go from this land to the next out of the land of slavery to sin and to the land of new creation, are we not to feed on Christ, present and future at the marriage supper on, of the Lamb? And this white stone, it's an interesting cultural reference here, in those days white stones were used as something of an admission pass to celebratory feasts. So you got like, the that's the pass, that's like the hookup. We as Christians gain admission and invitation to eternal life and salvation in Jesus Christ as He gives us this symbolic white stone. We have the invitation coming from Him, and it has His very name on it. That's what I think it is. We receive this. Those who endure to the end receive the reward for completing completing our race of faith. Christian, where are you in your race of faith? Are you willing to give up the worldliness that Satan holds out to you so that you might feed and feast even on Christ the Lord and Savior? Remember who your faithful Savior is. Turn from your sin and pledge your allegiance to Christ once again. And remember His kind-hearted promise, His tender compassion. Right Again, He knows our frailty. He knows that we are not saved by any works. We're not saved by even... These actions of holiness, it doesn't add to our salvation. We're saved only through believing on Christ alone, by grace through faith in Him alone. And this is what your Savior says. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that even as we hear about Christ returning with the sharp two-edged sword and His word of judgment, Lord, we recognize that maybe our instinct is to think that we just do in order to get. This is certainly not the case, God. We pray that you would remind us that even here this judgment is to remind us about who you are. That we might go on to show ourselves to be your people and to appreciate you as king. And even to love you in your righteousness, Lord, we pray that we would find this warning helpful as you so clearly lay out the fact that there are consequences to sin. We know, Lord, that we are stubborn. We know, too, that even some of us are going to need forms of church discipline, certainly rebukes. We all need rebukes, even some of us. Lord, we thank you that you give the church church discipline and even excommunication so that people would come to know their sin and so that people would see just how important it is to listen to Christ. And we know that even in church discipline, excommunication, these things are used so that people would turn from their sin and one day be saved. Lord, we pray that You would in fact soften our hearts where we might be tempted towards worldliness We pray, God, that You would help us see more and more of who Jesus is so that we would freely give up the things that we might be dreaming about in our sin and that we might run to satisfaction in Jesus. Cause us to see more of who You are by the Spirit's power that even though it is a fight, we pray, Lord, that as we see Christ, we might run the race of faith so faithfully clinging to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you, God, that even in the midst of our failures and our sins, we know, God, that you promise us in your word over and over again that you will forgive us our sins and separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. So, Lord, we pray that we would freely confess our sins, knowing that you say, you call us to turn from them and we can bank on the fact that you are righteous to forgive. Help us remember all, everything about your steadfast love in the gospel. These things we pray in your name. Amen.